Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 4th, 2019. It's a Thursday, so it's time for a listener call show. This is where you call me. You pick up your phone and you dial the Think line. That's 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K, the Think line. And uh, when you call in, you just say, hey, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question is, boom, give me your question. Or my point is, boom. Or I want to make some comments on, boom. Just give me the point up front. Then give me your details. If you do that, your call will go better. There is a better chance that you will end up on the air and always follow the other rules. The rules are call from a quiet location. Do not call me while some guy at lunch, you know, your lunch hour at work, and you're outside and the guy's walking past you with a leaf blower. Don't do that. I don't call from the back of a motorcycle while you're operating a chainsaw or any other heavy equipment. Also, if you're on a cell phone, look at the bars. If you only got one bar, you might sound like this. Hey, Jack, I... Aquaponics Garden Survival And there'll be no one to tell you And then you won't get on the air and you'll be sad So make sure you got good signal on your phone You call from a quiet area Bottom line up front and then give me the details Your odds of getting on the air are very high I would say over 50% of the calls do get on the air If they follow all those rules What do we got today? Hey, we just did a show on Container Gardens not long ago Got a great idea on using culverts and where you can get them. That's given me some ideas that I can give you on some other interesting ideas for your container gardens. Um, one more time. No, I do not recommend 529 plans. I just don't, but we'll talk about it one more time. Uh, more on night sights versus lasers for um, concealed carry users mainly after dark. Uh, of springs and aquaponics and YouTube videos. Got a gal calling in, new member of the audience. I love that when we get new people. And uh, has some questions on aquaponics and wants to know if you can find out more about how to actually do it versus just listening to me talk about it on YouTube videos. I've got some great ones for you, and I've got some thoughts on how a spring could be incorporated into uh, an aquatic or aquaponics system. Um, got a question on drip irrigation. Guy's got a problem. Uh, he has subterranean irrigate, drip irrigation. So you got the lines that are actually run under the ground, which is a really efficient way to do it. The problem is, well, he, you know, has these little critters like voles or moles or something that they want water, so they go chew it up. And if they chew it on the other, the wrong side of like a valve, and they're on vacation, they come back and the whole garden's flooded and all their water's gone because in a remote location they do not have unlimited water. I got a pretty simple, a dead simple way to solve this problem. Though it won't be subterranean, uh, it will fix the problem, and it's really easy, and anybody can do it. I uh, got a call on uh, homemade guns. Uh, we've been talking about this subject a little on and off lately. Yes, it's completely legal to do. We have someone calling in about how you uh, would be able to actually transfer a homemade gun, what you required legally to mark on the weapon before that you do, and uh, interesting discussion. And then I have a question on converting swimming pools into productive systems uh, rather than having a swimming pool. And uh, the guy mentions a drained pool. And I'll tell you the place I think that comes from and why I don't think that's what I would ever do because I believe in resiliency and 
it just doesn't make sense to have an eight foot deep pool that's three foot full of water uh, for any sort of productive system. And I've got a good friend that actually has converted his swimming pool into a backyard pond uh, and does a lot of uh, a lot of growing with that system. And I'll talk to you about that. So we have a really great lineup today. Want to remind you guys, if you wanted to, to learn how to build a pond, man, I've got this workshop going on here. I've got a cancellation. I've got an empty seat. I know it's kind of last minute and only a few weeks out, uh, but it's the 25th and 26th of this month. And if you're interested, email me with TSPC Workshop in the subject line. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into things today. And uh, start off with a call on container gardens. Hey, Jack. I just listened to the container gardening show, and um, I just had a quick recommendation for people for really long-lasting, pretty sturdy, and a wide variety of sizes for planters, which is to contact culvert and drainage contractors and see if they have drops. Um, frequently you'll just have a big scrap dumpster and they will be more than delighted if you go and take up their scraps and you can get anything from 30 inches or smaller if that's your if that's your flavor to 96 inches if you have the way to transport it um, anyway yeah I just got a couple dozen of them for free and now they're full and growing so thanks for all your help uh, this is Kyle from Virginia so, I, first of all, I just think that's a great idea, and I think that it, it, bigger than even container gardening, when you see material somewhere that looks like it's not going to be used, the price to ask somebody what's going to happen to it is $0. When I was a kid, um, my grandparents moved into a new house. This is before I went to Pennsylvania. This is my, my Florida grandparents. They moved into this new house, and it was one of the first houses built in a new subdivision. And it was about two and a half years before all of the houses in that subdivision were built. And it was a blessing and a curse for me as a little kid with a BB gun, because at first it was woods everywhere and, and what have you. And the more they built, the less woods there were to run around in. But they also put in a great big pond and, uh, in a neighborhood of like six, seven acres. Uh, anybody that lived in a subdivision, there was some public, you know, there was houses on it, but there was also some public access. Anybody living in it could fish. So I got a great place to fish. That was good. But all while it was being built, I would walk around where all these houses were being built. And one day I saw this big pile of wood. And I wanted to build a ramp for my bicycle so I could, you know, do jumps on it and stuff because kids were allowed to do stuff like that back then without being wrapped in bubble wrap and spray foam insulation. And uh, I just went up to this guy that was working there and said, hey, you know, that piece of wood over there, could, could I have that? I want to build a ramp for my bike. And he said, do you see how that wood's all piled up like that in a pile like that? It's, and he, I said, yeah. He goes, anytime you see that, that's scrap wood. We have no use for that, and when we're done here, we're just going to burn it. So anything that's in a pile like that, if you want it, you can just have it. And not just any this house, any of these houses we're building. Any, if you see it in a pile like that, and I, I said, oh, really? And I got all excited. He goes, no, you look, you see that pile over there? It's all nicely stacked and banded and covered and stuff. So, yeah, he goes, that's not the same kind of pile. You understand? I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, it's garbage pile type stuff. He goes, yeah, you can take anything you want out there. Just be careful. Don't hurt yourself and don't make me feel bad. Make me uh, regret telling you you could do that. So 
I was real good about it. I tried to go look when they were not working, and that way I didn't have to deal with anybody. But I got all kinds. I built freaking tons of stuff uh, with scrap wood that I got for free. And it, it taught me way back then, when you see anything like that, ask. Now, some other ideas for container gardens. First, let me tell you, um, I've seen a lot of people do them in things like kiddie pools and stuff like that. I have a lot of kiddie pools because I use them for the ducks, and when they get a hole in them, they're pretty much worthless. It works, but I don't like it in a hot climate because it's not deep enough. I like a container to be at least 18 inches, if not two feet deep, for a couple reasons. One, it gives you a lot of mass. Two, it's deep enough to do a wicking bed if, if you have an airtight, you know, watertight container, which makes everything better. Uh, it's easy to work on. Two foot off the ground is pretty easy to you know walk by and work on it. If you have a two-foot container and you throw it up on some center blocks, you got it rated about 30 inches. It's like waist height. It's just perfect. Uh, but it dries out a lot slower, even if it's not a wicking bed, when you have that much depth. So I prefer a lot of depth uh, to my containers. But the culvert idea is a great one. Um, another thing I would say, though, and this goes along with asking and, and keeping your eyes open, if you drive around in rural communities a lot of times, you'll see chunk piles just about everywhere you go. And one of the most common things you'll see kind of just out one of those piles is old stock tanks. And it usually don't take much more than kind of looking around to see somebody and wave and, hey, you know, and I was interested in, are you, would you be wanting to maybe sell this stock tank? A lot of times they'll tell you just take the damn thing or they'll, you know, give you 10 bucks and you're buying a stock tank that's a $100 or $120 stock tank for 10, 15, 20 bucks. Because it's got a hole in it or something like that. You can patch that hole with epoxy, and it doesn't really matter that it has a hole in it if you're just going to make a container garden out of it. So look for that feeding rings, fire rings. or another. So basically, it's like a galvanized stock tank, but it doesn't have a bottom, kind of like a culvert. Uh, that's another option. We just had the guy on about aircrete. If I was going to be building a lot of my own container gardens, I think I'd get set up and learn how to do aircrete because now you're gaining that skill but it's also really inexpensive. And with like you know, thin plywood, cheap plywood forms, you can basically just build almost any shape that you want out of it, and you're developing that skill the entire time. So there's just a ton of ways to kind of skin that cat of container gardening, and I really recommend that you think about it. And remember, you know, a big pot's a container, so always keep your eye out for sales, on like the big garden pots, um, I've noticed a lot of times places like Lowe's, Home Depot, etc. Right about the time they're going to bring the the live Christmas trees that are dead because they've been cut in, uh, they really want to clear out that garden center. And a lot of like the really big containers and pots, sometimes the cheap ones, but a lot of times the big concrete stuff and things like that, they'll put it on stupid cheap to get rid of it. And again, you keep an eye out, look for things that aren't being used. If you see really nice big concrete containers somewhere in your neighborhood and ain't nothing but weeds in them, you know, talk to the owner. Do you, are you ever going to use these? Do you want to sell them? Because uh, those are expensive and they're heavy and a pain in the ass to move, but they last forever. And then something you could check into, I, I, I was looking for different options for uh, large aquaponics systems one time and on a forum came by a guy that said he was able to buy burial concrete burial vaults for next to nothing. And they'd even come out and set them up wherever you wanted them. And you're going to need some help setting those up. But um, 
might be worth looking into. I don't remember what it was. It was ridiculous. Like, for the volume, there was almost nothing cheaper you could do, and including getting them delivered and set up. And, you know, the companies that do that, they're set up to deliver them. Uh, they don't really care if they're delivering them to your backyard or a, a, a burial ground. And it, no, there's some kind of weirdness to it, but it's a concrete box. So that's also something you can look into. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. If you have any great ideas for containers for container gardens, let us know about them. Uh, next up, we have a question on the ill-fated, dreaded 529 plan. And do not worry, I promise I won't go Stephen Harris here. Hey, Jack. Tyler in Ohio. My question is, should I open a 529 for my kids? The details are I have three children. Uh, and the odds of one of them are going to college, I feel, are pretty high. Uh, we already have $10,000 just in a money market account uh, earmarked for their life establishment fund, and I wanted to know if we should start uh, opening up a 529 uh, for them. So my house is completely paid off currently, so we do have some additional disposable income to uh, start getting this pumped uh, early and uh, get built early on in their lives. Thanks for all that you do, and look forward to the answer. Thanks. Bye. Uh, no, 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 and no. Um, recently, I had somebody make a case to me for a 529. It was the only case that I've ever had made to me that I went, you know what, That's that that dad I get. And it was uh, Illinois or, I don't know, Indiana or something like that, where they were basically getting money. Like for every $5,000 they put in, the state gave them $1,000 or something like that and a direct tax credit, not a tax write-off. So it was literally putting $1,000 into their pocket, and they were going to college. It was an adult going to college, so they put the money in the 529 plan and immediately spent it, and the government was giving them 20% more money. Uh, I can't argue the economics of that, and... If you live in one of those states and you're doing it because you think it offsets any potential penalties for your kids, you're probably right. Um, so, yeah, okay, maybe then, but I didn't hear that here. So let, let's talk about it. Three kids, and one of them's probably going to go to college, just on the odds. I, I agree. I think if you have three kids, odds are one of them's going to be right. You know, I come down hard, I think, sometimes on colleges with good reason. But there are kids that belong in college. My nephew, um, you know, this is a guy, he's fixing to go to law school for free. Now, he's, he's, he stacked up some debt, but he got a huge scholarship just for his four years of school. And now he's, uh, basically, he has law schools that are uh, recruiting him. So he's got three he can pick from that he can go to for almost nothing. Uh, this kid belongs in school. He's that good at what he does, and you know he wants a, hit, a future in law. So, yeah, you probably do. That doesn't. Which one? Because you got to kind of set it up for one of them or all of them. So, what if you got one out of two, and the other two want to go learn to fly helicopters or something? You, which ones are going? You see what I'm saying? Uh, Ten thousand. So you know about thirty, three hundred bucks and change a kid. Yeah, that's good. That's great. That's a good start. Um, this is another example, though, of hole-in-the-pocket syndrome. So now i got a little bit of money saved up. It worked. i got to do something with it, or I'm wasting it or something like that. No. First of all, as I keep saying, I think if you have money earmarked for a child's future, you shouldn't be that aggressive with your investments anyway with it. It should be pretty risk-adverse, in my opinion. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with a money market fund. There's nothing wrong with laddered CDs or something like that for the bulk of this money because you know you're not going to lose it. There's nothing wrong with you know mid midterm, short term bonds. Um, there's even some tax-free municipal bonds you could put it in, and it's still your money, and you decide when and how and if you transfer it to your children in the future. So you, we don't have to tax-defer this to invest it, right? And I think maybe sometimes parents are well-meaning as well. They're afraid, like, well, if this money's just easy to get at, then I might be tempted to go get it someday. And I understand that as well, but, you know, you just have to be disciplined, and you wall that money off, and you earmark it for This is, you know, a third of this is for child A and a third is for child B and a third is for child C. And unless we're getting thrown out of the house or something, it doesn't get touched. That's that's great. With that said, though, my question to you if I had you on a live call would be, are you and your wife maxing out your Roth IRA contributions for yourselves? Because if you're not, I would put as much of this money as I can into your own Roth IRAs. Because you can transfer that to your kids in the future for educational expenses. And it will grow tax-free. And you can just you know make note that what's been contributed for that purpose, so you know that part of your Roth IRA is for funding their education, should they need it for that purpose in the future. And you can get the money that you put into a Roth IRA out completely free of interest and penalties as long as you're only taking money out that you contributed because you already paid tax on it. So until you take more out of a Roth IRA than you put into it with some time limitations, which don't apply in this situation because you got plenty of time leading up here, um, you don't pay nothing. Now, a lot of times people do because they don't fill the form out right, but you can fix that with a five-second education. The money that you put into a conventional IRA is tax-deferred, Okay, And because of that, if it comes out early, it pays tax and penalty, just like the 529 does. In a Roth IRA, the money that goes into the Roth IRA is taxed. The interest and earnings on that investment are tax-free at time of distribution. That's why it is the best investment vehicle, period, for your retirement, And if you're maxing it for yourself, then you find something else to do with the kids' money. If you're not maxing it for yourself, then put it in there and earmark it until such time that you are, and then start putting it in another bucket. I don't like 529 plans for your child's future. I heard you use the word I use, which is life establishment fund. There is not enough tax advantage to make it worth having someone tell you when and how that money can be spent, in my opinion. And my opinion is not going to change unless they change the rules. Um, you have Again, you just don't know what your kids are going to want to do. You really don't. Your kid might decide to join the military. And they may not need that money until they get out of the military when they might have plenty of money for college from the military. And that money might be used then to further a degree, or it might be used once they have that degree to give them what they need to enter a career field where there's a significant expense and some sort of equipment or private certification costs. Like, I just, no, 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 529s, no, don't do it because there's just as good a chance that they will not have a qualified way to spend that money that they will. 
That's, that's the reality. And one of the problems that I've seen when people have college money put away is kids go to college because you might as well because the money's there. Where if the money's there and mom and dad say, this money is to help you get your life started, let's have a conversation about that. And when I feel confident in the investment you're asking me to make with my money that I put aside for you, not your money, okay? That When you have a conversation with a 17, 18, 19-year-old, about this money that's put aside for them, it's not their money. It's your money that under the right circumstances you have put aside so that you can invest in them. They are not entitled to it. It's not their money. It's your money. And that includes things like, well, if you're going to college and we're paying for it out of this and you're getting D's, we're not paying for it anymore until you can get your shit together. You understand? keep control. Of this money you've put aside, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, even if they're told you can go to college with this money, should not be given $50,000. They cannot. They are not responsible. That's why I hate student loans, because it's what you're doing. Well, you're, at least you're not giving them an obligation to pay you back, but you are giving them money to fund a life. And if it's not going to pay off, then it's a poor investment. So I think 529s limit your control over your investment in your child's future, and therefore I despise them. Let's take another one, this one on uh, on guns. Hi, Jack. This is the Tactical Redneck. And I have a couple of points to make for the caller you had asking about night sights versus a laser. And we could probably do a whole show on this, but I'm going to keep it with this. Night sight versus laser. Like you said, if I'm 5 to 10 feet, draw, point, squeeze. Bad guy, dead guy. So we're talking about distant shots, 15, 25 yards. With night sights, when I draw and sight in, I'm looking for a little green or red dot and arm's length in front of my face. With a laser, hopefully, when I draw and sight in, I'm going to be looking for a tiny little red dot 25 yards away on Mr. Bad Guy's chest. But depending on where you are, you're probably going to be outside because unless you have a big house, you're shooting 25 yards in your house. If I'm in a Walmart parking lot, I might be looking for that little red dot from the laser on the side of the Walmart 200 yards away. I mean, it's just for me, I don't like lasers. So it's definitely something, like Jack said, go to the range, get your hands on one, and practice with it to see if it works for you or not. Another point, too, is with the handheld weapons light, or the handheld light versus the weapons light. Holding something in your hand is kind of a different skill set than just shooting with both hands. So that's not necessarily something that you have to learn at night with the flashlight. It would probably be easier to do during the day, and it doesn't matter whether you use a flashlight or a stick, but learning to shoot with something else in your hand during the daylight, it's going to be easier. And then the transition to doing that at night with a flashlight is going to be a lot easier. So, anyway, hope that helps, Jack. Until next time, bye. I, I pretty much agree with that assessment. I I like the idea of laser, laser sights, but I don't own any. And I don't, I'm not in a hurry to. Um, I, you know, I do have 
uh, carry guns that have night sights. And they do work. And it's the same thing most law enforcement officers use. And I am a big proponent on training. And I, I always have and I've always you know, preached training over the next gun, take a class. Uh, or buy some ammo and get out there on the range and at least practice. Uh, and find a range you can move around in where you can draw and you can holster and you can drop mags and replace them and all. And I love all of that stuff. I do think one of the things that happens, though, when people get into that type of mindset is they start the mental escalation of the situation and all of a sudden they're worried about being combat Carl. And we all know what we tell Carl. STFU, Carl, right? Um, and, and, you know, we're going to find a million different things that could happen and what have you. And the, the down and dirty, the down and dirty is in armed citizen firearm engagements. The average distance is seven, not yards, seven feet. Now, understand that means because some of the engagement is a foot away. And some of the engagement is, you know, 10 yards away, and you get averages out of that. But the average is about seven feet. And the, I believe, if I remember right, the last study I read, the average duration of the engagement is somewhere between seven and 13 seconds, depending on what you consider the beginning and the end of that engagement. And uh, these long, sustained uh, TV-style, you know, Dirty, hairy firearms battles are just not, they're not just not likely, they're, they're about as improbable as winning the lottery with a ticket that you found on the ground. And I don't mean the $5 instant ticket either. I mean the kind of lottery where you, uh, you, you go in and, and, and take, if you really hate your boss, you take a crap on his desk, that kind of lottery. Um, it's that unlikely. So, we train for the, the worst, but we really train for the most probable. And, and I agree with Tactical there. If you're dealing with, you know, I, I know we teach, see the sights. See the sights, see the target. Bring the sights up to the... But in the end, at a distance of seven feet, if you actually extend into a, a shooting position at seven feet away from a target... The length of your arms and the length of their arms, assuming you're talking about two-armed men, you're almost handing the, the, the assailant your gun. You're not going to be shooting like that at seven feet unless you do what you should be doing, which is break contact, break distance. You should be moving backwards in an engagement like that. Uh, you're certainly not going to be spotting the laser dot on the guy's nose or something like that. Um, train to be able to shoot... At, le at these ranges, at least somewhat instinctively, like I said, one of the things that I use a lot in my training, because I can do it in my backyard without endangering anyone. Where I live, I'm legally, I, I'm legally fine shooting. I am not morally okay. There is potential for someone to get hurt in every direction around me. There's not enough to be sure of a good stop. Um, I'll take an animal with a 22 or something in an individual social way, but sustained, continuous training fire, I don't feel safe. So I tend to use airsoft here. And one of my airsoft guns, the sight got knocked off of it, and uh, I said, okay, great, I don't have a sight. Let's see what we can do without a sight. And I'm telling you, um, there's some benefit in that. 
it's not for everybody, I guess, but I I find that the people that shoot the fastest are the ones that shoot instinctively, I guess. I mean, uh, what's his name, that Byron guy with a bow and arrow? If he can shoot um, you know, a 12-inch wooden disc out of the air with a longbow shooting instinctively, then you should be able to shoot instinctively at a man-sized target at seven feet or even seven yards. That's That's my view on this. Um, I try not to poo-poo technology, okay? And I don't, I will not fault a single person who has a crimson laser trace sight on their handgun. I will not fault a person with, you know, uh, a red dot style sight on a handgun or a night sight or anything else. I will not say you're wrong. I'm an old guy. I like my 1911s. They're not jam-o-matics. I don't care. The, the, the people that say that, you're just stupid. The damn thing wouldn't have been around for over 100 years if they all jammed, okay? Uh, I don't know where you got yours from, or maybe you don't know how to take care of a gun or whatever it is, uh, but my 1911s are as reliable as anything else on the market. I like them because they fit my hand right, they shoot right, they feel right, they point right, and I think there is a case for minimalism. And, you know, there was a there was a gun show for a while where these guys built guns like Red something or another was the name of the show or the company that did the builds. And one of the AR builds they did for this guy was like some big-time trainer and competitor or whatever. They called it the Katana. And it was basically an AR with no bullshit on it. And I was like, well, and they did do some things to slick it up and all, but in the end it was like, it was like a flat-top AR with a good set of irons on it. And my immediate thought was, well, shit, I can take a piece of shit, Vietnam-era A1 that I trained with in basic in the Army, and even with my vision not being as good as it should be, I can shoot a man-sized target with iron sights at 300 meters with that. Why do we need all this other stuff? The other side of it, well, when you start shooting multiple reactive targets and time of engagement... And you've got that, you know, low mag, you know, red dot style sight on that AR. You start to realize you you can do a lot faster and a lot more. And so I don't put it down, but I also think that minimalism means there's less things to fail. And when there's less things to fail, you're down to the operator, his equipment, and his experience. So... We remove moving parts, we remove potential points of failure, and it's just where I'm coming from. And again, you know, a lot of you guys are 20 years younger than me. And the first time you picked up a gun and shot it, it was, you know, a slicked up, you know, red dot sided, you know, competition handgun. And you like it, and, I'm, and you want to carry something similar. I don't have a problem with it, but I think Tactical and I agree on the practical here. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Um, my name is Elisa. I've been listening to your podcast for about a week now. I've never listened to podcasts at all before because I didn't honestly even know what they were. I'm a 32-year-old living in Tennessee. My husband and I have our property paid off. Um, we were making an investment property in Greenville, Tennessee, which is just a little bit away from where we live in Unicoi. And I am just blown away by the amount of knowledge that I am soaking up whenever I listen to your podcast. And honestly, 
there are like so many things that I want to ask you your opinion on because just through my experience in life in general, I have learned that the more you learn from someone who's been there and done that, the less mistakes you'll make and the more progressive your progress will be. But I was just wondering if you had any kind of videos or anything on the aquaponics systems that you use, because that's something that I'm really interested in doing. We have a um, wet weather spring on our property that has, for the past couple of years, consistently had water in it. And I was thinking that that would be something that I might could use for that, but I'm not real experienced in it. And that would just be something that I would probably learn a lot from if you had a video or something showing even just what you have done yourself. But if there's anything that you could help me out with there, that would be wonderful. Well, I did uh, edit some some of the rest of that, just kind of cut the call right there because uh, she did ask me to email her and gave out her email address and uh, that's something I don't want to publish somebody's email address anyway. And I did get the email myself, and I'm going to email her and let her know that I answered this question in audio format on the show, and just in case maybe she would skip this episode and not recognize the show notes, that she's on it. So I figured this is better to help everybody than just help one person here. So here's the deal with this. Number one, let's start out with just the core question do I have videos available on aquaponics? And if you're a long-time listener, you know the answer is yes. Um, I have a playlist on my YouTube channel, which is uh, Survival Podcasting is the YouTube channel. Uh, and it, you can uh, just Google that, and you'll find Survival Podcasting YouTube channel, and you'll find it. Uh, and you should see my name, Jack Spirico, on the channel. Uh, but there's links on the website to my YouTube channel and, and what have you. And uh, subscribe here. If you listen to this podcast and you're not subscribed to YouTube, you're missing out, man. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. And when you do subscribe to anybody's YouTube channel, you hit subscribe. And right next there's like a little bell. If you click that bell, not only will I, you'll be a subscriber and see me in your feed, but whenever I publish something, you'll get an email from YouTube that says, hey, this person you follow published. Make sure you know that feature and use it. But I have two playlists that I think will be best for you. Uh, one is I have an aquatics and aquaponics playlist, and it has everything that I've ever done that has anything to do with ponds, aquaponics, etc. Now, I will say that some of it may not be as applicable to aquaponics, and some may be, you know, just I happen to have been really, I did a property walk and spent a lot of time near the pond, so I threw it in that particular playlist. But you can kind of look through it. All the videos that are in this second playlist are also in the first one, the Aquatics and Aquatics, but I have them in a standalone playlist. And this is probably the best resource I have for someone that wants to build an aquaponics system. Not this winter. Last winter, uh, I picked up a 300-gallon structural foam stock tank, Rubbermaid stock tank, for a project I knew I'd be doing that spring. They had them on sale, so I went ahead and got it early and said, hey, you know what? I got these big white tilapia. They're going to die in the cold. Why don't I put them in the, the garage, the back garage, where I can keep them warm and keep them through and you know, grow them really, really big? So I waited until it got really cold out, and uh, they started to almost die. 
They get really, really lethargic, and that makes them easy to net. They're almost like going on their side. They're so slow. So I netted them all out of the tank and put them in the tank inside. They all I got 100% of them made it. They all came back right away once they got in the water in the 60s and uh, kept them in there. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, why don't I throw a couple 4x4s up here, throw some you know, ebb and flow up on this, and build out an aquaponics system. And it was not designed to be a long-term system. I took it apart that spring. There are certainly things I would have done different with a long-term system, especially the wicking beds in it, because the wicking beds are done with shallow uh, concrete tray pans, and I don't think they make good long-term wicking beds. But it don't matter what you're building a system out of, the way you make a, a floating raft bed, the way you make a wicking bed, and the way you make an ebb and flow bed is the same, it's the same, it's the same. And in that project, I start out with bare bones, here's the tank with fish in it, We're going to take this 50-gallon stock tank and make it an ebb and flow bed. We're going to plug this bed in over here and make it a, w a wicking bed and make another wicking bed here. And we're going to build this raft and I, all three methods. And I really didn't need to do this. Um, I really didn't get as much out of it, it you know, to make it worth doing from a standpoint of production. It was cold. I had to use artificial lights, so there's more energy. I did it 100% as an educational playlist for you guys. And it really shows you absolutely everything. And one of the things it really teaches is things like growing baby greens, uh, growing microgreens, and replanting produce from the store, or if you harvested your own, from harvesting your own. Things like replanting lettuce cores and celery cores and green onions. Uh, even taking the baby beets they sell at stores, plugging them into an aquaponic system, harvesting the beet greens they grow until the, and then you know the beets you buy the baby beets they double in size so later on you actually harvest the beets so you get double the beet and all of the greens. Um, so I would say that would be the number one resource for anybody that wants to build aquaponics. I show how to do the exclusion of the media, how to build a bell siphon, etc. Um, so I really recommend that's where anybody, including this person, starts that you want to know how to do aquaponics. And it, it's like I, I could have polished it up a little bit, sold it for $49.95 as an e-course, and no one would have complained, and it's completely free. Now let's talk about this spring. For aquaponics, all that spring is is a really great source of water. That's all that it is. Um, Spring water is completely clean, and that's wonderful, and it's beautiful. And if we can you know, dig out that, create some sort of a catchment for it, we can throw a pump in there, and we can pump that water into our aquaponic system. And once it's in our aquaponic system, it's there. The beauty of this is you know, if you're on grid water, right, from a city, township, whatever, they put stuff in there like chlorine or chloramine, fluoride and stuff that just you don't want in your aquaponics system. doesn't mean you can't do it, but it means you need to use dechlorinator. Um, and with a sizable system over time, it, it's an additional expense. And every time we're adding water, we got to do the dechlorination and what have you. So if it was me and I was going to build an aquaponics system, I would also want to make that system run when that spring's dry. So I would probably include in my system a couple IBCs or perhaps a poly water tank or something like that somewhere in 
you know, doesn't have something to be right next to the spring. We can run some lines, and maybe it is a better spot for the system and for the extra storage. And when we drop a pump in there, I would not just pump water into my aquaponic system. I'd pump it into my reserve, and I'd come from the reserve to the aquaponic system and resupply. So uh, a, a pump on a kind of a backwards float valve would be the way to think about it. So we run that line to our, let's say we're going to use a 300-gallon poly, or a, let's say a 1,500-gallon poly tank, a really big one. But it could be just a bunch of IBCs plumbed together. What you can do is you set it up so that there's a float valve that stops the water when it's full versus stops the water when it's empty, if that makes sense. And then you just have to keep an eye on the seasonality. And if that spring goes dry, you also want a, a, a float valve on the pump itself. We don't want that pumps in there running in an empty basin. So now we got water into our reserve. Now you build your system. And, you, again, you resupply. Because the beauty of this now is you have really great water to, to add water as your system loses water or needs water changes. But if you're thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a grow bed and pump water out of the spring constantly, that's really not aquaponics. That is just irrigation. And a lot of the aquaponics technologies, it won't work well because that water has no nutrient value. We don't have any fish poop in it. We don't have any fertilizer in it, what have you. Now, what it, what it could be, and this would be if you want to simplify your life, we build container gardens that are wicking beds, and we use the spring for irrigation. We can dig ourselves some sort of a basin, You know, so we can get a pump into it. We hook that pump up. Again, it has a float valve. We put a float valve in our wicking beds. When they're full, it stops. Or if the cistern's empty, it, the pump doesn't run and burn itself up as long as we can get power out there. And woohoo, we have got a wicking bed system. We're irrigating with spring water out of the ground. Uh, we're only using power when those beds need to be filled up. We could even do it without your, you know, like without a float valve type situation. You could have an on-off switch, and you go out there and just fill your wicking beds up. So you got to figure out: is this spring really an opportunity for this? Does it work? Is the location right? Do you have power to it? Because running solar for this is just really not economically viable, in my opinion. Solar for aquaponic systems, what solar is good for. As you got yourself a few batteries, you're like uh, marine batteries or GC2 golf cart batteries wired together to 12 volt, and we've got basically air pumps, and those air pumps are fed into our aquaponic system, and if the grid power goes down, boom, those kick on and start running air pumps, and that way our fish live until the power comes back. That's about the only real use I see. And it's, it's, it, it's from a standpoint of efficiency, running air pumps takes a lot less energy than running um, water pumps. So the other way we can do that, and this is what I would advise, if you're going to have an air pump there, then I would have that air pump running off grid power as well. I'd be running the two together. And just power goes off, okay, let's switch it over and run off the backup power. Uh, that's my thoughts on this. Hopefully that's helpful. It's not too much rambling. And I will pop an email over to you to make sure you're aware of this. And that way your an the answer I give you helps everybody. Hey, Jack. This is Jason from Jefferson State. 
my question is, can you recommend a type of drip irrigation that might be more robust than what I'm currently using? Um, background is, uh, we uh, grow a lot of our own food up here in the mountains uh, in a climate very similar to yours. Um, we have very hot, dry summers. Um, we are zone 8B, 9A, depending on who you ask. And uh, we rely heavily on automated drip irrigation to, uh, to keep everything growing. problem we're running into is the 8 mil drip tape that... Uh, that we run subsurface and uh, I think it's about four inches deep according to the manufacturer's directions, um, gets chewed up by uh, critter, critters that burrow in our garden and uh, spend a lot of our summer patching leaks, which of course require digging up parts of the garden to get to it. Um, even bigger problem is when we go away for a couple of days, come back and find parts of the garden flooded. Um, it's a huge waste of the limited water we have access to up here. So I was wondering if there is a drip tape or a method of installation you can recommend that would be better for our application that would be less vulnerable to uh, uh, burrowing critters and uh, things that chew holes in it. Uh, any advice you got would be much appreciated. Thanks. Okay, so... I, I think my opinion here is that anything that you do that is tubing is going to continue to resort, result in exactly the problem that you're having uh, with animals chewing through it, voles or moles or whatever it is, gopher moles or whatever you got going on there. When you're in a dry climate and you irrigate, you provide moisture and critters will hone in on it and keeping them a hundred percent out is almost impossible because what would you do to get water if you didn't have it and you needed it? That's how you have to think about these critters. If you, if it, it wouldn't matter if you knew there was water in a tank that was usable and you had to build a ladder out of crap to get to that top of that tank so you could get the water out of it or chisel a hole in it or whatever you, you would do it. And so will they. So, my, I might be wrong about this, but my view is that you do not have a valid solution to this problem that involves it being subterranean underground. You're going to have to go with a surface drip irrigation system. And what I would do personally, if it was me, and it, I, I don't know of any critters that are probably going to be able to chew through this, I would use PVC pipe, probably three-quarter or one-inch PVC, one-inch being better because it's more durable and it doesn't really cost that much more. The only thing that costs more is the fittings. Um, and I would do a surface drip irrigation with PVC pipe, and you know, there's different plans out there on how to do it and how much, you, how much feet you can go per zone. And the holes to drill, and you drill little holes in the side of it for your emitters, and you don't use you don't use the the drip emitters. You basically just it just is slow watering out of a hole in the side of the pipe, and it's more of a really slow flow than a drip, and it works really really well. And you're not going to have a mole or a vole eat the PVC pipe. If anything, they'll drink a little bit of water off the side of it, and they'll stop needing to eat into it. Um, there's a video from University of Utah or Salt Lake or something like that, uh, a pretty dry climate out there, of a guy showing exactly how to build one. 
Now he does his to be manual. All of the uh, all of the controls done with just simple straight valves, and you know that way you can control how much flow. So how you know what does the water shoot out? Does it just barely weep out? What have you? And it works really good. I know you want to automate it. So what I would do because it's the most economical and easy thing to do is I would use those same straight valves in front of a solenoid. So you have your solenoid behind your straight valve, and your solenoid is just on and off, and that runs to your irrigation timing system, which you probably already have, and that's why I'm saying this makes sense. And then the valve, what we can do is we open the solenoids, push uh, you know, on, manual on, and then we can adjust our flow with our swing valve, And then we go back to our timer, and when that solenoid opens, that valve is your flow control, and your solenoid is your on and off. And to me, this makes sense. PVC pipe is cheap, it's efficient, it's available everywhere, and you're probably using it for other things on your property already. Most of us that use PVC pipe on our properties, we have extra elbows and T's and four ways and valves and all that stuff, buckets, and keep it organized, and we keep some... You know, cement around and a good set of like ratchet hand cutters, one of the best investments you'll ever make. You know, cutting up to about one and a half inch pipe with those instead of a saw, it's just easier to do repairs. I really recommend that. And if you like, your only downside here is when PVC is exposed to UV long term, it becomes brittle and it can break. With this type of installation, it's probably minimized, but it may be worth. Um, you can buy UV-stabilized PVC. And you, it may be worth doing that, um, especially on the pressure side of the system. Uh, the low-pressure side of the system, I mean, you know, it's not as big a deal. Uh, it is the best recommendation I can give you, and I would recommend doing it with mulch. Now, if you're doing seeding where you're doing like a, like a baby greens guard or something like that, Uh, you can do it without it, and you probably kind of need to in that situation. But most of your gardening, your long-term uh, plants, tomatoes, peppers, etc., um, mulch will allow this distribution of a surface-level irrigation without making a mud hole out of it, without digging up dirt, making holes and stuff like that. Uh, the beauty of it is it's a perfect planting line, and when you want to move it, you can just move it. I recommend cement everywhere on the pressure side when you go on the on the you know where you, your solenoids are and all up to that solenoid because you have full pressure there we want to glue everything past it dry fit It's, it doesn't matter if it leaks it's freaking irrigation line and the way I always think about PVC is pipe is free fittings cost money pipe is so cheap it's virtually free And if you do dry fit and you want to change something, it's easy. You pull it apart and you put it back together. It's like Tinker Toys. So that's the best recommendation I have. I can tell you want to be in the ground with your irrigation, and I understand why. It is the if we go on an efficiency scale, and that that would be as efficient. If we, it's not 100%. Nothing's 100% efficient. From a standpoint of how efficient can we be, we're at 100% efficiency. 100% of our capability. Maybe doing what I'm talking about limits you to 85% efficiency. But 
compared to, let's say, you know, whirly bird sprinklers being an efficiency of 25%, you're golden and you won't have this problem anymore. If anybody else has any ideas for irrigation uh, like this, let us know. And uh, if you have additional, this is one of those ones I'm willing to. If you have some more follow up after hearing me, send me more follow up. If you do it with a, a call, Email me separately and say, hey, I just called. I, I'm the one that called in about this before. I just love you some new information. That way I'll go fish it out and give it due attention. Let's take another one. This one on homemade guns. Hi, Jack. Jared from North Carolina here. I'm an armorer, and I'm calling to clarify some things about homemade firearms in relation to some things that you mentioned in episode 2396. Um, homemade firearms need no marking so long as they remain in the hands of the original maker. You can sell homemade firearms. Some people will tell you that you can't. You can. However, you have to mark them with the state and city of manufacture, caliber if applicable, model if applicable, and a serial number. Your serial number will probably be something like 0001, but honestly, it could be anything. Your serial number could be serial number and the Fed if you really wanted it to be. Nothing stopping you. You're the manufacturer. So the best way that I've found to mark a serial number and all this stuff on a firearm is a cheap set of alphanumeric punches. Amazon has... 1.5 millimeter or 16th inch alphanumeric punches for between 20 and 30 dollars. And they're perfectly fine. Shipping can be a little bit long because some of them come from foreign countries and you have to be aware that you have to purchase a separate set of letter and number punches. I haven't been able to find a combined set, but you're probably going to be out Maybe thirty, forty dollars tops. Okay. Well, I hope you have a great day. God bless. So I don't have a lot to add to this one because he was pretty much he just did a little mini like a little mini expert segment, huh? Uh, it's good to know. I do think a lot of people think that building a gun is illegal, and it isn't. And it is. Now I do have to say this: if you are legally not allowed to have a gun for whatever reason. Let's say you are a, a felon and you can't go buy a gun. I, it's just as illegal for you to build one as it is to buy one. Doesn't mean people don't do it. I'm just I got to put that out there. It's not like it's not a legal loophole. Um, my question with this would be: I completely understand that I can build a gun, and I don't have to be licensed to build a gun or anything. A private citizen, as long as what you're building is a legal firearm. If you're building a fully fully automatic uh, you know, uh, AR, uh, which would make it really an M16, then no, that's not legal. Just because you made it doesn't make it legal. Again, not you can't do it. It's not legal. But you can completely legally above board build either from parts or from raw materials, a gun. It's legal. You can sell it, and we just heard how. How it has to be marked. And what have you. Um, <clears throat> my question would be, 
at what point do I need an FFL? And I don't mean for the transfer. I mean for the activity of building the gun. So right now, it is, you know, it is kind of vague with selling guns, private gun sales. So if, if I want to sell my, I've got a, I don't know, Ruger 1022, and, and Joe across the street is a Texas resident and is not a felon, and I have no reason to believe he's prohibited from owning a firearm, and we're both Texas residents, I can say, Joe, I want $250 for my 1022. He can go, here's $250. I hand him my gun. We're good. Now, I actually think it makes sense. There's a form you can download online from a website that is basically a form that you get a copy and Joe gets a copy. And it says, I, Jack Spierko, sold one uh, Ruger 1022 serial number, blah, 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 to Joe Blow, uh, you know, and Joe Blow signs it to it and says he's not a felon. I have reasonable. I have no reason to believe he's a felon. I have a piece of paperwork, and if Joe... Uh, gives that gun to somebody who then sells it to somebody who then gives it to somebody and somewhere down the line somebody uses it in a crime and the government gets a hold of it and they they go back and through purchase uh, records figure out I was the per the last person on paper that bought that gun and they come to me and they say Mr. Spirko where'd your gun go and I say I sold it to a guy what's his name Joe Blow well, who's Joe well Joe's my next door neighbor. Can we go talk to him? Well, he doesn't live there anymore. Well, where'd he go? I don't know. He moved five years ago. See, I've got a problem here. I have, you know, I'm law-abiding citizen, but there's a gun that has my name on the paper trail, and the paper trail goes cold, right? Where if I have the man's full name and his signature that says he bought that gun from me and the date that it was transferred. Now they need to track him down. It is not my problem anymore. So I think that's a good thing to do, and we don't file that with any government regulatory agency or anything, but it goes in wherever we keep our important papers. Do you have a receipt, Mr. Spearco, for when you sold this gun to Joe Blow? Yes, officer, I do. Let me go get that for you. Because if somebody used a gun in a crime and I can help, and I don't mean a crime because they they had the gun, somebody you know shot somebody with I want Yeah, I want to be as helpful as I can. Um, so, yeah, okay, here. And I also don't want any problems. So that that's good there. But the law is vague as to when exactly I become a dealer. They, they, they refer to people as unlicensed dealers. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as an unlicensed dealer. You're either a dealer or you're not a dealer. And you either have a license or you don't, right? And they don't put a number on it. They don't say that... You know, you can sell up to 50 guns a year, or you can sell up to 25 guns a year, you can sell up to 100 guns a year. They say if it's significant revenue-generating activity or something like that. And, well, it significant. Is $10,000 significant? But I might sell one gun for $10,000. You know, so my question with making guns and then selling that gun Does that just fall under that? Or is there a point at which I'm manufacturing enough guns that I'm now a manufacturer of firearms and I need a license for that? And so that would be, I'd love to hear anybody's take on that as to where I cross that line. Because I could see since you can make guns, somebody kind of having a little small business doing that. When does it become a business? If I make 12 a year and I sell all of them, am I in business? If I make two a year and sell one, Am I in business? Or, you know, are those activities independent? That would be an interesting one. That's 
sometimes, you know, we have a law enforcement officer on the, on the panel. I really think sometimes it would be a good idea if we had a lawyer. Uh, if you're an attorney and you'd be interested in talking to me about expert counsel, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and maybe I need more than one because a lot of times lawyers specialize. We might need kind of like a lawyer that's a business side lawyer and a lawyer for kind of this kind of thing that's on the other side of things, like direct law enforcement interaction type things. Anyway, I'd be interested to hear your proposals on that if you're an attorney or anybody with specific knowledge or, you know, I do this and this is the point where I had to do it or here's how I cover my ass or whatnot. Because uh, I do think it's an interesting topic and a good skill to learn. We've got one more question. This one on pools and uh, not for swimming. Hi, Jack. This is Don in Fredonia. I see you have a podcast, the Survival Podcast Garden. And I was wondering what you think of empty swimming pools and survival situations associated with that, say, um, using them as aquaponics garden slash hydroponics slash maybe greenhouse, since you have a gradient there. Anyway, thanks for all you do. Have a great day. Well, let me start out with something I think would just be awesome if you had the material, the budget, the time, the know-how, and the space to pull it off. An in-ground pool with a greenhouse built over it with enough space in that greenhouse that there's still plenty of grow area that's not directly over the pool. And I could even see building something analogous to a dock in that swimming pool to give yourself more grow space and more access to the water. And I said not for swimming, but pond conversion swimming pools absolutely can be swimming. And here's what I'm thinking, because he said drained. Um, I, it, there's a couple different ways I guess you could take this. Is this for now or is this for the apocalypse? So if the apocalypse has happened and, and uh, 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 places become a ghost town, and there's swimming pools around, could you convert them into something? Sure, but we don't really go down that road. I'm thinking this fellow watched a TV show at some point in his life called Doomsday Preppers, and he saw this dude, he was either in Utah or Arizona or something like that, he's the guy that clown that put his kids in a chemical suit, and he built a pretty cool system, and I, if I remember right, he had some shade and it could be used in the, in the, in the winter as more of a greenhouse as well, over the pool, And the pool was about a third full, and he had tilapia in the pool, and he was using the pump and water out to do aquaponics and all. This, to me, is not what I would do. I would keep that pool full of water for whatever I did with it, but I love the idea of a pond conversion. My, my friend David lives about 45 minutes away from me, has a backyard in-ground pool, relatively small one, like you know, they have on the suburban lots, And he turned it into exactly that, a pond. And he's got major pumps going, and he's got he pumps water all through his backyard. It's almost his whole backyard is is, uh, is concreted in. It's not real big, but he produces a lot of food, a lot of food in that backyard. And almost every bit of it is irrigated one way or another by the pool. And David's the guy that helped get me into aquaponics and helped me do a lot of what I've done here. And he has things like he has an old aluminum boat that he found that had a hole in it. So he turned it into a, basically a wicking bed. And it just, once a day, it just pumps water through it and re-irrigates it. He doesn't do a lot of aquaponics. And this is one of the things that you get into with people when you start going up in volume of water. 
it becomes very difficult to do anything that truly would be aquaponics because we need enough fish to produce enough waste to feed the plants. So most of what he does is mostly what I do, which is wicking beds and then use that water as an irrigation source. And that's a much more efficient way to do things because instead of you know having this ebb and flow constantly going, um, and then you have you know evaporation all, we're just adding water to the bottom of these wicking beds or pumping it through these wicking beds and returning it to the pond. And that way the plants only use what they need, and we lose almost nothing to evaporation. And then we take that pond, and in our summer period where we have a lot of heat, we grow water hyacinth or water lettuce or some sort of floating vegetation and we try to cover a hundred percent if we can of the surface of that pond uh, except for some disturbances where water is being returned for oxygenation and we do that because that reduces our evaporation it also keeps our uh, our habitat very good for the fish because that surface vegetation uses a ton of those nutrients up. So we, we're, fil we're using those to filter instead of an aquaponics-type filter. Additionally, that stuff grows so fast, quite a few times in the summer, we're going to have to pull it off and take it down about 50%. And it'll come back to 100% in the height of the growth season in a few weeks. And every time we pull that vegetation off, we're going to throw that into some sort of composting situation, and we're going to make some of the best compost for our wicking beds you can make. What, what my buddy David does is he has these wire cages. He fills them up with dirt, and he plants things in them. So they're just basically grow beds. And when he pulls his vegetation off the pond, he just throws it straight in those cages. And that basically does two things. One, that vegetation's so wet, that when you throw it in there, basically you've watered the plant for a few days. And then it breaks down, and that soil just keeps getting better and better and better. So it's lazy man's composting. I'll just grab this, throw it in there. I've mulched, I've watered, I've fertilized, and I've contributed to the long-term soil health through composting all in one shot. And that's the way I see this. Now, what I think would be just awesome would be if you could, you know, and my back, my back neighbor has this little pool back there, and I always think, you know, hate to say it this way, but if he passes away, I know he's got no heirs, I'd be on that estate sale like, like white on rice. And if I ever got my hands on it, it's a perfect size where you build uh, an, a greenhouse, solid structure greenhouse, like a sunroom in Florida, all around that pool, do the pond conversion thing, put a pier out there on it so you can walk out and get at it. Uh, just And then to have you know shade cloth, And where you can open and get full ventilation in the summer would be awesome. Um, I'm a little less excited about the idea of using above-ground pools in southern climates, and it's just because I have an above-ground pool, and that water by August gets so hot I almost don't want to swim anymore. And that's not good for fish. So if you're going to use an above-ground pool, you've got to do something with shading it in, protecting it, etc., Uh, to keep that water temperature down in your uh, your summers. But it's a hell of an opportunity because there's tons of above-ground pools out there that are basically free. So as long as you have the right space to set it up and you can keep it shaded and keep it from getting too hot, uh, I think you can do it with those too. Now, my, my thing about why I wouldn't want to drain it, I can understand why somebody would do it. I just don't agree. I don't think the benefit's enough. If we drain it, and reduce the volume and put enough fish in it, we can actually do aquaponics with it. When we pump that water through a system, we actually get enough fertility. But to me, you can grow 
a lot of nutrition, what's hard to grow is calories. Okay? Um, you can grow all the lettuce you want. You can grow all the radishes you want. You can grow all the peppers and tomatoes and whatever you want. The only real calorie crops are your starches, your potatoes, your corn, maize, things like that. Um, and they still only so much from a caloric yield you can get. Fish are a high caloric yield. So if I fill the pool, I can grow more fish. And I'd rather grow fish than onions. Okay. Now, the next component to this is that water's a resource. So I have a pool that holds 15,000 gallons when it's full, and I only put 3,000 gallons of water in it so that I can load it up with tilapia and grow lettuce. Well, if the shit really hits the fan, I have 3,000 gallons of water to work with. If I have that pool full at all times, then I have 15,000 gallons to work with, and if I'm smart, I've probably set up my my roof catchment so that I'm catching water in the tanks and those tanks overflow into my pool and then the pool overflows into the world. And maybe if it's a conventional yard, I have swales and the pool overflows into the swales and it grows trees. And that means that even if the shit is the fan, whenever it rains, I'm filling the pool up. If you're worried about the stuff on the roof, you can look up something called the first flush for roof catchment. And basically we take something like a big pipe and that pipe has to be completely full And then that triggers a, a valve that allows the water to then go to catchment. And that first, you know, 100 gallons is discarded. Uh, or, you know, even 20 gallons. So that first first stuff that comes off the roof washes the nasty stuff off goes away. In the end, I think with pond level systems, when you grow a pond like I'm talking about, the ecology in there is so good, it takes care of everything anyway. Um, in fact, it becomes your filter for everything that you do. So that, that's the way that I would approach this, because I want that water. I want to be able to grow more fish. More water equals more fish. I want more water, because I can put that water in my Berkey. Uh, David took his pond water at the height of the season, dumped it through a Berkey, sent the water in to get it tested, and it tested better than the city water that comes out of his tap. So that tells you something right there. So I want that water... For irrigation, I want that water for bathing. I want that water for fish, what have you, if I end up in a really uh, long-term downgrid situation. So that's my approach to that. Good question. Thanks for asking it. Uh, with that, let's wrap the show up for the day. So I want to always remind you guys that, you know, without you guys supporting this show, without it being a business, it wouldn't happen. Uh, we will hit our 11th year on June 20th, and I've been doing this show full-time as, as my business At that point, it will be for nine and a half years. And the first 18 months was really hard, <laughs> really was hard, uh, working full-time job and producing the show. And, and you know, now for nine and a half years, I've done this show, and I've brought you all this information, all these guests. If, if I didn't have members supporting me, I couldn't do that. This show wouldn't exist. I'd have to go do something else. So if you love this show and you want it to always be here and you're not an MSB member, consider becoming one today. All you got to do to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and you can sign up. But I don't believe in donations. I'm not PBS. So I've worked really hard. I have over 70 companies that do discounts. And at $50 a year membership fee, if you use those discounts, you will get your money back. I hear from people all the time that say they make, and I don't mean total. I mean after they get their money back, then on profit, they make $100 to $200 a year by being a member is the way they look at it because that money goes right back in their pocket. 
Uh, and if it's something you were going to buy anyway, you know, instead of buying it from you know Joe Blows, you buy it from one of our sporting vendors and get your discount. We have seeds, uh, we have medical kits, we have uh, you know everything you can think of. We have a vendor that supports us, and some of the stuffs even things you wouldn't think of, like gourmet olive oils and stuff like that. EcoSense is another company that you know, if you're, your reluctant spouse is a wife and you're the husband and You can get her some cool stuff from EcoSense and get a discount on it. You might win her over. Uh, so please consider becoming a member. The other way is for you to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, and just go there, and, and you can look at all the reviews I've done and what have you. But as long as you start your shopping there, when you shop on Amazon, you help support us no matter what you buy. So if you're going to buy something today, just start there. That's all you got to do to help us out. That said, I do. I put a lot of effort into my reviews, and it, th this is my thing. There's tons of websites out there with all kinds of reviews and product information all on Amazon, and most of them are nothing. That's all they do. They just, they just. Oh, we're going to do food processors today. So they make a grid and put five food processors on it. And all of them go to Amazon, and if you go buy one, they make some money. That's not what I do. If you see it on my website, I own it, I spent my money on it, and I recommend it because I would buy it again. There's one or two items I've been given. Will you review this item? And I always tell people, you know, if it sucks, I'm going to say it sucks. And But I, if I think it's good, I, you know, I've had a couple I'll do that with, always disclaimer. If you don't see a disclaimer that says it was given to me, I bought it because I needed it. And then I used it and said, hey, I think my audience would like that. That's very true of today's item. It is the uh, the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. This is one of the books I recommend. It's by a, an author named James Green. And this book literally, it's like buying a course on, on home herbalism. If you buy this book, do the projects that are in it, learn about the herbs that are in it, you will know about as much as anybody as a self-taught herbalist could learn. If you said, Jack, you can only have one book, I'm going to go up into your library, and I have a little library upstairs with all my books in it. I'm going to take away all your books on herbs. You can only keep one. What's it going to be? I'm not even, I don't even care. You can have the other ones. I've read them. I know them. This is my reference. And I want you to think about it this way. If I brought somebody on the show here, and they said, I have a home study course on herbalism that will teach you All of the ways to prepare herbs and how to do them, walk you through it step by step, teach you about the herbal actions, the herbs you can rely on, give you the core herbs, like all the stuff this book does. And they said, that course is $50. I'd sell off a couple thousand of them. A couple thousand of y'all would sign up to take that course. This book does that for $17. Bucks. It's that good. Um, they do make this book in Kindle at $15. Bucks. I, I love my Kindle. I'm going to say it again. I love my Kindle. I love my app. I don't have a Kindle anymore. I have apps, right? I have my Kindle app for my phone, Kindle app for my computer, et cetera, Kindle app for my tablet. I love my Kindle books. There are certain books that I don't want an electronic copy. I want a hard copy. And it's not so when the shit hits the fan, my book will still be there so I can save my wife with my herbal knowledge. It's just a practical application for a book that's like this that I might use as a reference book or something like that. Um, I want a hard copy. I recommend the hard copy on this one. Uh, so much so that if you really wanted the Kindle copy, I'd say get the hard copy too. Just going to go out there and say that. This book has made me a better home herbalist. 
and I think it can do the same thing for you. I, I really think you could get this book, and you could put together a video series and sell a course on herbalism from this book. That's how, and no one, if you did it right, you could everything that in your course you could learn. You could probably sell for ninety nine bucks, and not a single one of your customers would complain. They'd all feel very well taught. Check it out again. It's called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. My review of it is available today at thesurvivalpodcast.com and under recent reviews at tspaz.com. And you always support us when you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Let's talk about our song of the day today. Our, our songs this week have all really kind of involved kids and taking care of each other and things like that. And this one's Actually, a really sad song. I think a lot of people hear this song and don't have any idea what it's about. It's by Pearl Jam, and it's called Daughter. And if you hear a song called Daughter, you'd think that'd be a good song. I mean, a positive song, because we tend to all really love our kids. And uh, this song is actually written from the perspective of a girl with a learning disability. Specifically, the uh, the writer of the song, Eddie Vedler, uh, Vedder, uh, had in mind dyslexia. And what he said is that this child's trying to learn, the mother's trying to teach them, and the child's abused. The song ends with the idea of the shades going down in the house. And that's so the neighbors won't see the kid basically getting beaten for not being smart enough, for not understanding. And dyslexics have a hard time reading and comprehending the written language. And a lot of times they have problems with mathematics for the same reason. But they're not stupid. Um, many dyslexics actually have very, very high IQs. And verbally they really know their stuff. Where they have a problem is when you put written word in front of them, um, it's just, they, it doesn't make sense. And many years ago, I don't know what happened to me. I don't have many stroke or something, uh, but this is almost 20 years ago now. There was a day I picked up a book and nothing looked right to me. Everything was jumbled. And it only lasted for a couple minutes, but I, I don't know if I just had a really long day. And since I didn't have my, I, I don't wear my glasses when I read. Um, up close, actually, when I wear my glasses, I don't see well, so I have I'm a, I'm nearsighted, I guess you'd say. Um, so I don't know if maybe it's just a long day, my eyes were tired from the computer or what. But I, I remember always holding on to that thing, and is this what it's like for a dyslexic? Because I, I I wouldn't be able to read myself. But they can learn to read, and there are certain ways that we can address and teach this. And I don't know. Man, the thought of anybody hitting a kid just makes me sick. I mean, I think there's always a way to teach discipline uh, and have much more long-term lessons than, than hitting someone. I believe that force and violence are to be used only in defense, and there's no way a child can defend himself from an adult. Um, but to think of somebody being hit because... They're having a hard time learning to read. That really makes me sick. And it makes uh, the band sick, too. They said that what hurts about shit like this is a quote, is that it ends up defining people's lives. They have to live with that abuse for the rest of their life. Good creative people uh, are just effing destroyed. Um, I agree. And 
this is an example. I've talked about it before with the problems with our education system in that I believe that everybody's a genius. Everybody's a genius at something. At something. I think it was Einstein uh, that said, if you judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it would leave, live its entire life believing, believing that it was stupid. And just as there are different things that we're good at, gifted at, have uh, an ability to do, there are people that the structure of a written language is 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 just doesn't work for them. I I literally believe it is like what I experienced in that you know one few moment period twenty something years ago that you see, for instance, I'm looking at the word song right now, and I see S-O-N-G, and if I'm a little kid learning, I can learn the sound, song. I see it that way, and they literally don't see it that way. Maybe they see it like S-G-O-N. They just see it differently. And we need to understand that, and when we recognize that, we need to get people like that the help they need so that they can read well enough to function in society. But we don't ever need to try to force them to become an English teacher. It's not necessary. Who knows what they're gifted at? We all need to explore our gifts, and we all need encouragement. And I would just say that one of the things I think that really hurts people with reading disabilities is that they can be incredibly smart, so they're taken as being lazy. Well, obviously this person's smart. Listen to them talk. And, and I, I think we do a better job with this than we did 20 years ago, and a definitely a better job than we did 30 years ago with screening for it. But it's something we always need to be out on the lookout for. And I want you to think about it this way. There are people that by the time they're six years old, you can say, see that picture there? And they go, yeah, you go draw that picture. And they draw that picture. And we don't get upset when someone can't. Because the person that can do that is the exception. You see what I'm saying? The person that can look at something and draw it very, very accurately, without any training or help, is the exception. What if everybody, not everybody, what if the, 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 the rule was most human beings, by the age of six or seven years old, would have the ability to draw really, really well? To, like, make an exact copy. Just look at it and draw it. And then, how would we look at the person that couldn't? And that's how you have to understand dyslexia. Just because the majority of people can see the structure of language the way that we do, doesn't mean that everybody can. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with the person that can't. It means that their talent may lie elsewhere. And this is one of the reasons I don't think we can ever reform the modern education system. Because that's one of a million variables, and people need to be free to encourage the gifts that they have. And nobody should be abused because of wanting to do things a different way than anybody else. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Table in an otherwise empty